One, we're going to try to finish this chapter today. We have been looking at the book of Revelation, the introduction and the salutation of John the last couple of weeks. And so this morning we're going to read the rest of the chapter. We're going to start at verse 9 down through verse 20. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9 down through verse 20. So if you have that, you can follow along with me, starting Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Let's take a minute and pray, and uh, then we'll look at the word a little more closely. And Father, now we present ourselves to you and submit to your authority and your scripture and the word that you've given us through your Son, that you revealed to us as your absolute truth. And Father, as we study this passage of Scripture, Lord, we know that revelation is difficult sometimes, and that it's not always easy to understand, but Lord, you give wisdom, you give truth, and you give understanding through your Holy Spirit. You've told us that, and so that's what we ask for today, that you work in each one of us the understanding that you want us to gain from this. Lord, teach us the lessons from your word today as you see fit, through your Holy Spirit as we yield to him. Lord, I pray that you would use me now as your spokesperson and your instrument. Just fill me with your spirit and with strength of voice and of body and mind and give me wisdom and the words to say so that we might hear from you today, that you might speak to our hearts as well as our minds and change us and challenge us with your word. We thank you for your goodness and what you're about to do. Lord, just bless us now, work in us, we pray, and we ask in all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right, as I said, we went through the beginning of Revelation. We've gotten past the introduction and the greeting or the salutation of this book. And here we're going to arrive in this passage at the end of the first chapter of the first vision that John has in the book of Revelation. Here is the beginning of these visions. Now, I want to quick give you an uh, uh, introductory lesson as far as the way Revelation is written and many other things in Scripture are written. You have to look at the Jewish perspective, and you've heard me say this, but if you understand the Jewish perspective, things will make more sense. You're going to see some things repeated throughout the book, and you'll even see some things repeated here in this passage that we already read. That's the way Jewish literature is written. They give you a quick summary and an introduction, and then they'll back up and start over and give you more details as they fill in the blanks for you. Okay, so if as you read, not just this chapter, but as we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to see that pattern. And here we'll see elements of that. 
Okay? But here John is telling us, here's this vision that I had. The introduction is not a separate incident or a separate section from this. He's basically introducing the book in the first eight verses, greeting the churches. Now he's going to go back and start with the message. And here's what the situation is that happens to him, the vision that he receives from the Lord Jesus Christ, and the things that he's going to tell the churches. Okay? So I'm going to go through these verses kind of verse by verse or phrase by phrase so that we get a good understanding of what he's saying here. Um, and we're going to try to do this as we go through Revelation because some of this stuff, the imagery is hard to understand. And as far as practical application, sometimes it's hard to grasp that. But I want to try to make it as clear as possible because God didn't give us Revelation to confuse us. We saw that. God is revealing truth to us here and literally revealing Jesus Christ. And that's what I want you to see today is this picture of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ that John gives us in this vision. He starts off in verse 9 and he says, I, John. Now, he's identifying himself, but he already identified himself in verse 4. He said, John, but he doesn't call himself an apostle He doesn't call himself an elder. He just says, I, John. And then look at the phrase that follows that. Who am your brother and companion? John is recognizing or identifying himself here as just a believer, a part of the family of God, a part of the body of Christ, together with all other true believers. And it's important to understand that because he's, not speaking necessarily with his authority as an apostle. He's saying, I am a brother, a fellow believer, and I'm going to tell you something that happened to me that you might not believe, and in fact, I had trouble believing it, but it was really true. And the Lord did this for me so that we could all learn from it. So John's not saying, because I received this, I'm up here. He's saying, I went through this as a believer. And so he, he uh, not just compares himself, but he identifies himself with the body of Christ. He is a brother, a fellow partaker. And the fellow partaker is what he talks about in the next phrase. And he says, who am your brother and companion? And he gives us three aspects of the fellowship that he has with other Christians here. And the, fellow, the three aspects are, in, he goes on and he says, in tribulation, in, in the kingdom, and the patience of Jesus Christ, or in Jesus Christ. So there's three aspects that he literally has fellowship with the people that he's talking to. He starts with this tribulation, and we looked at this as we looked at fellowship several weeks ago. He relates the fact that he is a brother, but then he explains this suffering or the tribulation that he's going through. At the end of verse 9, he says, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the isle of Patmos, as I explained before, and as you may know, was a small island. It's about 35 square miles off the coast of Turkey. And it was used in the Roman Empire as kind of a prison camp. Okay, they would send criminals there, and they would work hard labor. And so that's the situation that John is in. Now, remember, I told you uh, last week and the week before, this was written about 90, 92, 94 A.D. And John was alive for most of Christ's life. He may have been a little younger than Christ, but if we assume that John was, was born right around the beginning of the century here, He's probably about 90 years old at this point, and here he's being sent to a prison camp, and what they would do basically would be break rocks. I mean, you've seen this probably in movies about these uh, chain gangs that are out breaking rocks with sledgehammers and the heat, you know, very little water, very poor clothing. That's the situation that John finds himself in. And it's not because he's a criminal or done anything wrong. He's a criminal in the perspective of Rome because he is preaching Christ. And by this time in history, Rome had identified Christianity as an illegal religion because it did not uh, recognize the gods of the Romans. And it became a threat to them in their eyes that would usurp their authority and draw people away from the Roman Empire. So at this point, Rome had declared Christians to be enemies. 
And anybody that they saw that was propagating this gospel of Jesus Christ would be put in irons and put in a dungeon or killed. And so many Christians were going through persecution, severe persecution at this time, under the emperor Domitian in the Roman Empire. And that's what John says. He's in exile at Patmos. But he says, I was in, in this exile, I was at Patmos for the word and for the testimony of Jesus Christ because he preached the gospel. So you talk about true persecution, here it is. Now, we can't relate to this in our lives. We may say we have suffered for the name of Christ. But how many of us have been put in this situation that John was in because of our testimony of Jesus Christ? So John says that he's suffering as a brother. He's a companion or a partaker of suffering, of tribulation, in this way, because he's identified with Christ. In First Peter, now we know that this, if you know anything about Peter, Peter also suffered, was eventually crucified because of his testimony of Christ. But in First Peter chapter 3, he says, but, if and if, but, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of terror, neither be troubled, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. So John counts it or calls it here literally fellowship in suffering with believers. And he says, I'm a brother, I'm a partaker with you, I'm a companion in suffering with you as fellow believers. So he says, we're suffering together. And Paul refers to this, and when he talks in Philippians chapter 3, we can talk about the suffering of Paul all day, but in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, if by any means I might be made conformable unto his death. So there's fellowship and suffering, John says here, and I'm a partaker of that. I'm right in there with you. I'm not some high and lofty person, I'm just another believer who's suffering for the name of Christ. So he says, first of all, he's a partaker of the, tri- of the tribulation that Christians go through. Then he says, I'm part of the kingdom or a partaker of the kingdom. And he's talking about the kingdom of Christ, the church, the salvation. Now, people would argue whenever you see the word kingdom here. Again, it's a Jew writing, so he must be talking about the millennial kingdom. But he's addressing this to the churches, So we have to remember that. So as he says, I'm a partaker of your suffering and also of the kingdom, it has to be the kingdom that the church belongs to. And this is the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We, we, the church, are part of that. And together, we're all part of the body, and that's what John says. I'm part of that kingdom. Remember, in verse 6, we looked at last week, when John says, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. We're part of that kingdom together, John says. And then he says, not only in tribulation in the kingdom, but also in patience. And this is important. In patience. The word here is endurance. The word is hupomone in Greek. It means to remain under. Now, if you want to take patience, you want to learn a a great lesson about patience, and you take this Greek word hupomone, meaning to remain under. Think of it this way. Get the picture of someone holding you under water. And instead of struggling, you just patiently wait happily for somebody to save you. That's this word, hupomone. And that's what John says is characteristic of believers together. We suffer together in this world under tribulation, under persecution. And it feels like we can't survive, but God is faithful. God will deliver us. We know that promise. And so, therefore, we can patiently endure. No matter what we face, we can patiently endure. And so John says, we suffer together, but we remain patient because we're all part of God's kingdom. We're all part of Christ's kingdom. This patience, this endurance, is something that marks a true believer in Christ. And it's not only that we can have patience, it's that we will have patience. Because remember, this patient endurance is a fruit of the Spirit. And we have the Spirit in us. It naturally will be part of us. Now, we're not going to be perfect in it, 
but it will continue to grow, and it should be the way we look at things. You know, and instead of praying all the time, God, deliver me from this trial. God, deliver me from this hard time. The prayer is, Lord, help me get through this with your strength. God will deliver us. It may not be on this earth, but when he takes us to heaven, we'll be delivered from all evil and from all persecution. So we patiently endure, John says. So he says, here we are fellowshipping with other true believers in suffering, patiently waiting for Christ's ultimate deliverance. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 13, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Endurance is a mark of Christian Christianity. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So this is a mark of a true believer, and, Paul, and John here is saying, we fellowship together because we all go through the trials. We're all part of the kingdom, and we can all patiently endure until Christ sees it right, the right time for us to be delivered from it. So John identifies himself, and this I, John, here, again, as I said, it's kind of a surprised, almost um, unbelieving statement. You know, if, if somebody scares you or you see something amazing, you go, oh, my, you know, like that. It's, it takes you by surprise. This is what John is expressing. He's saying, I, John, you wouldn't believe this, but this happened to me. And he says, here's the situation I'm in, but then he gives us the circumstances of the vision. In verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit here um, means basically that he was taken to a point that was kind of outside of his physical senses. Whenever you see this in the spirit, Paul used this phrase. Peter used this phrase. Many of the, the um, uh, prophets in the Old Testament were in this state where it's kind of an out-of-body experience. And what this means is that God was speaking directly to their spirit apart from their physical senses. So they didn't stand here like, you were, like you're sitting here hearing me. It was almost as if they were outside of their body in spirit, communing directly with God in their spirit. Remember, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is kind of the highest form of that connection, of that communication from God. And so that's the situation that John says. The Holy Spirit literally kind of transported me out of my body, and now I'm communing directly in spirit with God. And he says it was on the Lord's day. Now, there's debate about this meaning or of this phrase. I'm going to tell you, I believe he's talking about Sunday, okay? And there's some reasons why. By this point, the early church regularly was practicing getting together on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, okay? This is, not, um, what, 60-some years after Christ went back to heaven, after his resurrection and his ascension. So the church at this point made this a practice. All Christians practiced this meeting on the Lord's Day. They called it the Lord's Day. In Christian literature, you see this phrase in the Greek, just as John records it here, in the Lord's Day. Now, many people want to say, well, this is talking about the day of the Lord. This is talking about the end times, the final judgment, the coming of Christ when he's going to set up his kingdom. I don't believe that's true because, number one, it's a different Greek phrase. In this usage, it's used as an adjective. It's describing the day, the Lord's day. Just as we partook of the Lord's Supper, it's the same type of describing or adjectival phrase in the Greek. When you talk about the day of the Lord in Scripture, and there's several references in Scripture that use that phrase, talking about the end times, the final judgment of Christ on the earth, that is a noun phrase. And so there's a difference in phraseology here, okay? So what we're talking about here is that I believe John is saying he was worshiping the Lord on Sunday. And during this worship on Sunday, even though he's alone, that's the regular practice, the Lord kind of transported him in his spirit to receive this vision. And he says in this vision, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now the reference to a voice like a trumpet is used in scripture before. And it's, referred, it's used to refer to the voice of God. This morning in, in um, Sunday school, we started reading in Revela- uh, Revelation. Sorry, no, we started reading in Exodus. 
um, about Israel coming out of Egypt and getting to Mount Sinai where they are about to hear the law from God. And later in Exodus chapter 19, it says, God spoke to Israel out of the cloud with a voice like a trumpet, and all the people trembled. So it's this piercing, clear, very loud voice that John hears, the same voice that the Israelites heard. In fact, John describes it later in Revelation chapter 4, and he says the voice of Jesus sounded as a trumpet when he's about to show him the things that are to come. And so what John hears behind him is literally the voice of Jesus Christ. But at this point, it's this loud, trumpet-like sound. And then verse 11, here's the command that, God, that Christ gives him in this voice. He says, um, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what thou seest, write in the book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists the churches here. Christ starts with this phrase, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, as I mentioned before, you've probably heard this already. If you go back to verse 8, John is recording Christ's words in describing Christ. In verse 8, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Now, interestingly, he uses the same phrase here, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. So we go, did Christ say it twice in the same vision? What, what's going on? No, what I believe happened is Christ said this to him immediately, so John would recognize him, but John gives the introduction. He says, this is what Christ said, and now he's explaining the conditions and the circumstances under which that happened. So he's going back. Now, another interesting part of this is that this phrase, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, is not recorded in the oldest manuscripts of this passage that we have. This was added in later in some manuscripts. It could have been scribes trying to clarify who is talking specifically here. Um, but, you know, the oldest manuscripts don't have it. But it's not a problem that it's here because it is the words of Christ. John already told us in verse 8, and it is there in all the manuscripts in verse 8. So anyway, we know that it's Christ talking to us. And then he says, what thou seest, write in a book and send to the seven churches. John hears Christ tell him, I'm about to show you something, and you need to record this and send it to the churches. Now, we've already talked about the seven churches a little bit. We're going to get into them next week specifically. But the seven churches were seven churches in Asia Minor, and they're listed right here in verse 11. He says, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those were seven representative churches that were in major communication areas that represented the whole entire area of Asia Minor. So it's very possible that Christ is giving him this message to send to these churches, and from these churches it will be passed out to all the other churches in the area. But the seven, again, is the number of completion or perfection. And so the seven churches represents all churches across the entire church age. And as we get into the seven churches, you're going to see that. The problems those churches have represent the problems that all churches throughout all time have, and they're characteristic of specific time periods within the church age. Okay? So he says, I want you to record this. I want you to send it to the churches so everyone can benefit from this. Now remember, he promised a blessing back in chapter 3. Blessed is he that readeth, they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So Christ is giving this message to the church so that the blessings from what Christ is about to say can be received by these people. So it's not just these seven churches. This is for all the church, including us. That's why we're studying it. If it wasn't for us, it wouldn't matter. We could just go on and do something else. But this is for us. Verse 12. Here's when Christ is revealed, and for the rest of the chapter, John focuses on what he sees in the person of Jesus Christ, in the glorified Lord. He says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. The first thing he sees is seven candlesticks, or seven lampstands. These are not the menorah, okay? The menorah that you see in Jewish uh, culture and that was used in the temple is one lampstand with seven arms that have lights on them, 
Okay, that's different. These are individual candlesticks or lamp stands, and each one would have a light at the top of it. They would be spread throughout a residence to give light in different parts of the house. Um, And so here what John sees is seven of these candlesticks. They represent, as we found out in verse 20, that these are the seven churches, or they represent the church as a whole. The church is Christ's light in the world. We are the candlesticks. Now, the light is not produced from us. We merely bear the light. The church is God's light bearer. We don't produce it. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Christ said, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, ye are the light of the world. How do you reconcile that contradiction? Because we bear the light. Christ is the light. We just bear the light. And so when, when John sees these seven candlesticks, he's seeing the church represented in, in its fullness right here as the light bearers of the truth of God. Now, before we go any farther, I want to make this point because he's about to describe Christ. In the next phrase, he says, and in the middle or in the midst, in verse uh, 13, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of God or Son of Man. Okay? Whenever you see this phrase, the Son of Man, in the New Testament, more than likely it's referring to Christ as judge. It has a connotation of judgment behind it. And that's what we're going to see as we read through Revelation, the final judgment that Christ is going to bring on those people who reject him. Okay? But I want to share this note with you. Okay? What we envision Christ to be like will define our worship. Let me give you an example, okay? Because we have, just by nature, when we see something or hear something described, we formulate this mental picture of what we think it should look like. Now, when we talk about Jesus Christ and we say his name, probably in our minds is something similar to what we have on the back here in this tapestry, okay? Christ the Good Shepherd. On the front of our building, you may not even know this, but on the front of our building is a large stained glass window that depicts Christ as the Good Shepherd with his sheep around him and one sheep in his arms. And it's the traditional, you know, the brown hair and the robe and the staff, and that's the picture of Christ. That's probably somewhat what he looked like on earth. In fact, the Bible tells us he was comely. There was nothing exceptional about him as a man. He was just basically an ordinary person physically to look at. There was nothing exceptional about him. We can go beyond that. We can get the picture as this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord on the cross. We may picture him in his suffering with that crown of thorns pressed upon his head, the nails driven through his hands and his feet, and the blood coming out of those wounds and the suffering that he goes through, in just the abject humiliation of his crucifixion that he endured. And there's nothing wrong with that picture. Because in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says we should have that mind of Jesus Christ who would submit himself to endure those things as a servant for the benefit of us. But what John describes here is a completely different portrait of Jesus Christ. And if we fail to see this Jesus, then I think our worship suffers. And it's not quite what it ought to be. So John turns. He sees this exalted, glorified Jesus Christ standing in the middle of these candlesticks. Now there's two lessons, very quickly, from that picture before we get into the description of Jesus Christ. The first one is that Jesus is always with us. He's always with us. Here he is in the middle of the candlesticks. The church represented here and Jesus in the center of it. He's always there. And he promised, that was his promise in Matthew 28, before he went to heaven. He said, I want you to go and teach all nations, baptizing them and and, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then his last statement was what? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So this picture that John has shows Jesus right in the middle of of the church, the candlesticks. He is always there. 
He will not abandon that promise. And if we in our lives get to the point where we feel like Christ is not there, things are just not happening for us, we don't feel his presence, it's not because Christ moved, because he's in the center. The problem is we've moved away from him. So he hasn't failed in his promise. We've just failed in our faithfulness to follow him. So Christ is always with us. But second of all, Christ is at the center of everything. He is the center of the church. That is why we worship. That is who we worship. We come together to exalt him. And if that's not our purpose for being here, we have the wrong reason to come and worship. In fact, it's not worship if we don't have Jesus at the center of everything we do. Because worship is literally acknowledging his worth-ship that he deserves our praise and our worship before him because of who he is. And so he has to be at the center of everything. So John says here we see, he sees Jesus. Jesus is in the middle signifying his presence with the church and the center of his person of the church and as the church. And that's where we begin our worship. And then he describes Christ. And he says, here he is. He's clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. At the end of verse 13. So he's got this garment. And later in Revelation, we'll see that it's a white garment. Okay? This white garment was a very fancy white garment. It wasn't the normal wear. Usually it was made of linen. And it was from the neck all the way to the feet. One solid piece. This white linen signifies dignity and honor. It was the robe or the type of robe that was worn by princes and by kings when they weren't in their regal garments, you know, in front of people. But more importantly, this is exactly the robe that God describes that the high priests or the priests of Israel would wear when they came into the temple to serve. So the picture that Christ is giving John here is that Christ is fulfilling his role as high priest. And we can read that in scripture. We know that he is our mediator. First Timothy tells us that. Hebrews tells us that he intercedes for us at the throne of God. So John is seeing Jesus Christ as a high priest. This golden girdle or golden sash that he wears signifies that, that nobility, that authority that he carries in this role. Now, a normal person who would just be an average worker would have a sash as well, but they would wear it around the belt. When you have a sash around the middle, that signifies work. When you wear it up around your chest, as John describes it here, that's nobility and authority. So there's a difference in the picture here. He's saying is Jesus Christ here is now pictured not as a servant, but as the authority, as the high priest, as the ruler Okay, so the clothes mean something. He goes on and he says in verse 14, his head and his hairs were like white, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were the flame of fire. Now, the white hair was not because he was old. Okay, Christ is perfect. He's not going to age. He is, he was, he will be in the future. He never changes. So this is glorified Christ as he is. The white hair is not about him getting old. Okay? We may end up with that, and we may end up with no hair when we get old. Okay? Christ, this white hair, signifies majesty and purity. And it's not a flat white, because as you read through Revelation, we'll see in the future, it's a glowing white, almost like a white, hot, glowing furnace. Now, if you've ever seen something that's white, hot, I mean, that's about as hot as you can get. And that's the picture of Jesus Christ here. His white, hot hair. It's a, signif- it's a symbol of purity. And Jesus himself is pure and holy. We know that. He's perfect. There's no sin found in him. And so it's his purity and holiness, but also it represents what he calls his church to be. We have been instructed to be holy people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter says, but as he which hath called you is holy, talking about the holiness of Jesus Christ, 
So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, I use this in marriage counseling, but it, there's a principle of the church here. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then he describes Christ's purpose for giving himself for the church in verse 26 of Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So this holiness is what we are called to as Christ's church. We are to be holy as he is holy, and this white hair represents that purity and holiness. So there's really no question as far as the church is concerned, and here he's standing in the middle of the churches giving us this example. There's no, there's no question about the standard that he's called us to. We are to be holy as Christ was holy. Then he says he has eyes as a flame of fire. Jesus Christ sees everything. It's not that there was fire shooting out of his eyes. John says it's as, it's a metaphor or simile, okay? He says it's like his eyes were a flame of fire. They were glowing. And it symbolizes that Christ sees everything, the hot, piercing gaze of Jesus Christ. No one can escape his gaze. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. When we talked about secret sin, there is no such thing as secret sin because God sees everything. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. This is the eyes, the all-seeing eyes of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can escape his gaze. And so with those eyes, he continuously examines both the world and his church. And he does it under that standard of holiness. Now, we know the world does not meet that standard. But the church is called to meet that standard. And we cannot escape it. We cannot hide from it. We cannot counterfeit it because Christ sees what we truly are. This is the picture of Christ that John is giving us. He goes on. He says, the feet of fine brass in verse 15. His feet like unto fine brass as if they are burned in a furnace. Brass, when you see it in scripture, is significant or symbolizes sin. All of the elements in the Old Testament um, the tabernacle were made of brass except for the Ark of the Covenant that was made of gold, that pure, fine gold that symbolized the presence of God. But brass is a mixture, I'm sorry, brass is a metal that is less in value, but it symbolizes uh, sin in the Bible. And so when Christ when it's talking about Christ having these feet of glowing brass, that's what he says. It's like it was in a furnace. They're glowing brass. It's a sign of judgment against sin. That's what the altar in the tabernacle signified. The cleansing of sin through the sacrifice. The labor of brass was cleansing of sin through the washing of the water. So this brass signifies judgment against sin. That's these feet of Jesus Christ. He's going to judge sin. And he's going to judge sin both in the world and in his church. Now there's a difference in how he judges. Because in the world, they're going to receive the ultimate judgment of, of eternal death. And as we go through Revelation toward the end, especially when he comes back the second time to the earth, he's going to destroy his enemies. In fact, the Bible tells us he tramples them as if they were in a wine press. In Isaiah chapter 63, there's a great description of that. So his feet of brass signify judgment here. But he also purges the church. He comes and examines us and then purges the church. He has to get rid of the sin. We'll see that as we look at the next two chapters, as we look at these seven churches. The other thing that these feet signify is conquest. Now, in ancient times, to put your feet on the neck of your enemies showed that you had conquered them. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, uh, the Israelites had just got done fighting the Amorites, and there were five kings who were hiding in a cave, and Joshua tells the Israelites to bring the kings to him. And he tells them this way in Joshua 10, 24, when it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, 
Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. Because that signified conquest. Joshua wanted them to get the picture that God had given them ultimate victory in this battle. And that they had conquered their enemies. In the British Museum, there is a three and a half foot tall relief sculpture of a man called Tilgath Pileser. He was the first king of Assyria that came in and attacked the northern tribe of Israel after Israel had split into two, two uh, empires. And he came in and sacked the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and took many people away captive. He was the first of the Assyrians to do that. And there's this three-and-a-half-foot-tall relief sculpture of this king, and the scene is King Tilgath-Pileser standing on the neck of an enemy who's bowed down to the earth before him. He was known as the leader of the slave makers, or the leader of those who make captive. That's what his name means. So that was his reputation, was to subdue his enemies. And this symbol that became the symbol of subduction or of conquest over his enemies was his standing on the neck. And that's, again, what Jesus' feet symbolize here. It is conquest. It is judgment. In ancient times, when kings would sit on their throne, they would sit up on a raised platform. So obviously, they were above everybody else, just as I am here today. But they would sit up on this throne. So even as they were sitting, everybody else in the throne room was below them. And if you came in and wanted to petition the king, you would bow down your face below him. That means your entire body was now under his feet. That's the picture of Jesus Christ. When it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, his feet represent the conquest and the authority that he will have over every nation, every people, when he finally establishes his kingdom on earth. But he has that authority in our lives now. It's just a matter of whether we accept it or not. And if we don't accept it, then judgment will be poured out. He goes on and describes the voice of Christ. He says, the voice as of many waters. Now, we've already heard one description of the voice of Christ. He says, before he turned around, John says, I heard the voice as of a clear, loud trumpet. Now he says his voice was as of many waters. And here, he's, he's probably alluding to Ezekiel, chapter 43, when the prophet Ezekiel said, And behold, the glory of the Lord, I'm sorry, behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was as the voice of many waters. Think Niagara Falls, if you were standing right underneath it, okay? And the earth shined with his glory, Ezekiel says. So this is a thundering voice like the crash of a waterfall, and again, it symbolizes the authority of God. Now, this is Jesus Christ, but it's the authority of God. John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus Christ himself said, there's a voice that will call all from the dead. All graves will give up their dead at the resurrection. And it's the power of this voice of authority that will call them forth. Hebrews 1 tells us, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past, spoke unto the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And this is the voice that speaks things into existence. Remember, God spoke and everything was created. There is power and authority in the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the, in the verse 16, it says, In his right hand, he holds the seven stars. The seven stars are identified in, in verse 20 as the angels or the messengers of the church. Now, some will say, based on verse 20, because it uses the Greek word angelos, that these are seven special angels sent to bring the message of God to the churches. I believe that the word messenger here is the same word in the Greek and in the Hebrew, by the way. The word in, Greek, in Hebrew is malach. It means messenger, and it's used for angels, but I believe that God is talking about seven messengers from these seven churches that are going to take this revelation back to the church. 
and Christ has them in his hand. Representatives of the church. The Greek word here, again, is messenger. There's no reason why God would give John, a human being, a message to give angels to give to people. Okay, that doesn't make sense. God gives the message directly to angels to reveal to man. But John is giving, or Christ is giving John this message to give to these messengers to send to the churches. So these are the messengers of the churches. And it says they are held in his hand. Now, when we think of being in God's hand, in Romans it tells us that we cannot be plucked out of his hand. So there's this safety and protection that comes with that. But more than that, it says it's in his right hand. That's my right, okay? His right hand, which means, again, control. That's where the king held his scepter. That was the authority. And if he pointed his scepter at you, he could either bless you or condemn you. But it's control. Christ controls the church. Again, he's at the center of everything. He controls the church. He controls the leaders of the church. He is to be the leader of the church because he is the head as Ephesians tells us. And so it's about his control, about his authority in the church. And then he says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Albert Barnes, the commentator, says the two edges were designed to cut both ways. Think about that, a two-edged sword in battle. If you were swinging it back and forth, you would be striking at both strikes. So it's designed to cut both ways, he says. And such a sword is a striking emblem of the penetrating power of truth or of the words that proceed from the mouth and is designed undoubtedly to be the representation here. He says there's a sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. We already talked about his voice. These are the words, Christ's words. They come out of his mouth like a sword. We're familiar with Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm sure the same picture is being given in Hebrews as it was here in John. It says, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Lord of our church has a sword, and it is his word. And if you remember Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of that chapter, Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, and one of the last Things that we're supposed to take on as far as the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is our only offensive weapon. And that is the power of God's words. The power of Christ literally is in His Word. We know that He spoke and all things came into being in Genesis chapter 1. In Psalm 33, David says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them, by the breath of his mouth. He literally breathed out all of the stars and planets. That's the power of his word. In Revelation 19, when we get there, it tells us that with the sword of his mouth, he will smite the nations. Christ does not need other weapons. All he needs is his word, because that is where his power resides. And not just for him, but for us. You want to, I get asked this a lot, how, how, how can I get better in living the Christian life? And usually I tell people a very simple answer. I say, well, first of all, read God's word more, study God's word more, and pray. You know, it's a simple thing, a song our kids learned when they were little. Read the Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Why don't we read the Bible more? Why don't we go to it for answers? Because we don't believe the power of God is there. And if we did, this would be the substance of everything we are as believers. The word of God is his power. It is the weapon. It cleanses us. It discerns us. It helps us. It is our weapon against the enemy of Satan. And it is the weapon that Christ will use when he comes to wreak judgment and and havoc upon his enemies at the second coming. Is the word of his mouth, this double-edged sword that destroys everything in its path. That's the weapon we have at our disposal. Now, because of time, I'm going to have to stop here. But I want you to get this picture that John is presenting of Jesus Christ. This is not the meek shepherd with the staff holding his sheep. 
Now, Christ cares for us like that. But if that's the only picture of Jesus Christ that we have, then we miss the power of our risen Lord and the glorified Christ that we have at our disposal. And it changes the way we worship him, as we're going to see next week. We need to see Christ as John saw him here. Not just as the good shepherd. That's important. He does care for his sheep. But as the risen, glorified, powerful judge of the world, and his word is where the power is held and where it's exercised. If we had that principle, we would act differently. We would live differently. We would treat this book differently in living as a believer. This is the risen Lord. This is the power that is at our disposal as his children, as part of his kingdom. And so there's no reason why we need to live as defeated believers. Next week, we're going to look at the response of worship that John has. And as I said at the beginning, if we see Christ right, then our worship will be totally different. We'll stop there. We're going to have a word of prayer and uh, finish our service this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you are the almighty God, that you are all-powerful over us and over your enemies, over everything that happens in this world. And Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you are the exalted Lord of our lives, the exalted Lord of heaven, that you are our high priest, interceding for us before the throne of God, presenting us as righteous because of your righteousness and what you've done on our behalf. And so, Lord, help us to see you as you truly are, to worship you as you truly are, and to it have access to this power of your word that you've given us at our disposal to use it frequently and efficiently to defeat the enemies of Satan and his attacks against us in our life. Lord, help us to trust your strength, not our own, your wisdom, not our own, holding you up as the King and Lord truly of our life. Go with us now with your blessing, we pray. I pray that you continue to work in us and bring us closer to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 73. May Jesus Christ be praised. I'm going to ask the guys if they would come and join me this morning as we have our hymn to end our service. May Jesus Christ be praised. And as we praise him, we need to praise him as he is and not just for what we think he should be or what we think he might be.